was just a little taste of the opera Castor and Patience by Gregory Spears and Tracy K. Smith. Welcome to Relevant Tones. I'm Stephen Rawson, and in today's episode we're going to give you another new opera feature. Castor and Patience was commissioned by Cincinnati Opera for their centennial. Because of the pandemic, it was delayed two years, but last month the work finally received its premiere. Today we're going to listen to my conversation with Gregory Spears and Tracy K. Smith, and also listen to more of Castor and Patience. I wanted to talk generally about your love for opera. I know, Gregory, you've written opera before, you've written a number of works, and, and Tracy, this is your first libretto? It's the first commission libretto. Oh, okay. There's a, a younger libretto out there that I think is going to end up being um, performed in the, in the fall. Maybe you can both answer this. What What is it about opera that, that draws you to it? Oh, goodness. You know, I uh, I really got interested in classical music when I was younger. And I um, I think actually what drew me to it is that, uh, that you know, you could you could express yourself. And, and there were, uh, you know, and, and there was a kind of abstract quality to music. And I think that's what initially drew me to it. Um, and then there was this big shift that happened for me, really maybe after graduate school where I encountered really in person the, the operatic voice. And that really changed everything to me. I'd always been an opera fan and I'd been going to the opera since, you know, since high school and loving it. But really feeling the presence of that voice in a room and, and it was so powerful and, um, you know, and it's not, it's not like a, a, an amplified it's not like you're listening to something through a speaker. There's something so incredibly 
human and uh, to me all of a sudden I, I desperately wanted to use what had felt like a somewhat abstract form you know music to uh, participate in telling stories and all of a sudden I was so excited about that and then and working with writers and being able to uh, join narrative and I and I since you're a new music um, fan you know I'll, I'll talk a little in kind of music terms you know the, the what I call the circular forms of music so like ABA um, this sort of uh, uh, symmetrical forms of music with the kind of cause and effect narrative forms of storytelling and when and so excited at the collision and and union and collaboration between those two things and so working with writers um, became such a thrill and sort of in a wonderful way, it opened up all these doors for me as a as a composer to sort of reconcile those two worlds to work together. So, um, so then I and then I wrote a piece with uh, my friend Catherine Wallet, who's a wonderful playwright, and and it was just a thrill. I felt like I'd come home, and I wanted to do it for as long as I could after that. I definitely, you know, I come to opera. I feel like through a side door. I feel like poetry is a close cousin. But I've often thought of it as a form that gives us access to the interior life that we um, we all contain, but that we are oftentimes overwhelmed by. You know, the scale, the scope, the surprising, you know, contradictions. Um, poetry helps to bring language and images and a form of music to making sense of that. And so it only feels natural that bringing that poetic imagination to the space that opera kind of swells into allows us to say, oh, we carry these enormous stakes within us all the time. There are so many times in any life where you you kind of need an aria, <laughs> right? You, you could be able to like burst into this expressive mode. Absolutely. And so it's really exciting to be able to do that. And I feel like, you know, having now worked with Greg, for years, <laughs> I understand what else happens, um, you know, musically, collaboratively, spatially, um, in that exchange. And it's it. I kind of feel the same way. I want to keep doing this for as long as possible, <laughs> learning about you know the, the human condition and also speaking to the stories and the the questions and the conflicts that we live with that need to be explored. I think on that scale. There are plenty of moments in my day where I need an aria. I can agree with that, too. <laughs> I want to talk about Castor and Patience a bit. It's it's different as, a, as an opera drama. I mean, there there is usually with, with opera, we have a, a villain on stage and someone we can, you know, hate, root against in a, in a lot of opera. Um, in, in this case, the, the villain is not physically there. <laughs> Where where did uh, the story of Castor and Patience come from, and why did why did the story need to be an opera? You know, the story emerged from a kind of observation that Greg had, which was the landscape of the South is changing at such a rapid rate due to development, and there seems to be a form of historic erasure that comes with that. And I didn't know a lot about this story, even though I have family um, that lived and that still live in the South. And so we traveled together. We spent time in different communities talking to people who, who were aware of and affected by these changes. And 
the story of a family kind of grew out of that. And what was powerful, I think, for both of us was realizing this isn't a regional dynamic. This is the story of America and its relationship to history, its um, regard for black people. And so it just felt like, okay, we're going to try and learn about this by letting these characters talk to us and, and reveal what's at stake for them. And in some ways, that sense of the villain, it's almost like, and I feel like this is this is what our lives oftentimes feel like, these forces that we participate in, submit to, or are, you know, kind of like made to to deal with, they almost feel like weather. It's ambient. But if you think about them and follow them, we can see that there are decisions that have been made by people <laughs> um, and that we, like I said, participate in. And so that sense of the villain is something that's invisible, but um, omnipresent, that felt real in a way. Yeah. There's a line in one of West's arias when he is taking the Castor family to um, the unmarked gravesite where he says the stakes have changed from freedom and equality to conservation and ecology. It's well, funny because well, we don't realize how often we're, we're encouraged to change allegiances and we're encouraged to imagine that we can only have one allegiance at a time. And that's really dangerous, I think. You uh, both wrote a short essay after completing... The, the work. Maybe you could, you could tell me a little bit about what the purpose of that short essay was, if you know what, which one I'm talking about. This piece is so much about history and, and memory and uh, sort of understanding a context in which an action happens or in which um, the, a character finds themselves. And so I think, you know, giving the audience a little bit of a sort of context uh, around the opera felt right. And to sort of, um, I think maybe that much and give them a sense of, of the world in which, and, and the history that was on our minds as we were writing it, I think that was uh, one of the goals of that. History plays a role, right? These characters from the past um, enter into the, you know, the performance and even into the present at different moments. Um, but I think it's possible, and in some ways, if the work is successful, you imagine you're just thinking about the lives of, of you know, this handful of people. You know, you're in a house, you're in a family, you're thinking about what's at stake for these people. And so it's a closed system. And I think that the essay hopefully encourages people to do some of the extrapolation that we did that actually led us into that closed system, which says it's not just a them and a there. It's an us and a here. And so hopefully, um, you know, maybe starting or, or ending by taking a look at that, that brief text is a way of saying, okay, let me think about what this, how far this story reaches. I, I love the questions that you ask in, in the essay. The, uh, you talk about the joys and complexities of home and family, and, and you ask questions of what and who is home? What can we ask of the people we love? What do we owe them? Are the things uh, we inherit meant for us uh, to set us free or to bind us more tightly to one another? I really feel like that that text does help frame the story for me. And, and hearing those questions makes it, I don't know, makes it more personal and, and inviting and, and universal in a way, too. Well, the story takes place in the 2008 financial crisis. 
And this is the story of Castor and Celeste and their children going down from Buffalo, New York, down to the rural South, American South, and they are going to visit um, Patience and Patience's family on an island. We learn that Castor is having a lot of financial difficulties. There's a lot to, there's a lot to talk about in this opera. It's almost a little difficult to know where to start. Um, because I, I want to I talk about like the issue of, well, let's start with the issue of like the financial difficulties that, that they're having. Castor and Celeste um, are victims of you know, the mortgage crisis where a lot of people had these adjustable rate mortgages that ballooned up in 2008 and quickly they find themselves underwater, as they say, you know, they're drowning. Um, it's not an accident that that happened. Um, this is, um, you know, in some ways they were sort of put onto a path <laughs> toward this kind of, of, of crisis from the 1960s when his family migrated from the south to the north and found themselves in red, you know, the condition of, of dealing with redlining. They inherited uh, this mortgage from, from Castor's parents. And in some ways, they are trying to hold on to the legacy of their family and their, their family's journey. Um, they're also trying to put their kids into good schools and set up a future for them that looks kind of like, you know, what we imagine the American dream is supposed to look like for all of us. And it's funny because the story has a lot of tentacles in a way. You could say this is a story about the racial wealth gap. And so it, by just tracing Castor's history, we understand a little bit about where, where the foundations for that began. And we also understand that Castor's situation isn't the result of like living beyond his means. It's not the result of somebody being irresponsible. Um, he's kind of like doing the right things um, and realizing in some ways that that doesn't make enough of a difference um, for him and his family. The stakes are interesting to us or to me because um, Ca Castor's solution is um, to want to sell part of this land that Patience has been safeguarding for generations and her version of the story is her ancestors were able to purchase land from the US government during a brief window and reconstruction when that was possible and they've held on to it for more than a century despite a lot of you know developers but also eminent domain um, ballooning tax um, tax assessments so she's doing all the right things in a way as well and hoping that by doing that she can prevent the footprint of their family and black families like them from from disappearing and they come to loggerheads in a way right somebody would have to give in order for for caster to um stay afloat but what would that do to patients and her her um, investment one of the things that i think is uh is, is interesting about you know about the conflict in, in this case of course is that it, it's it's really in some ways it, it can feel unresolvable right that 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 yeah two characters who have you know actually are, are are trying to protect the same thing they're trying to protect their home and their legacy and yet those two things within the larger family are then in conflict with one another and the way in which um, all of these historical forces that Tracy was talking about have, have put them in this position in which, you know, their allegiance to 
to home in a, in a local sense, in the case of Castor's home in Buffalo, puts his allegiance to home in the greater sense of this larger family unit puts that in jeopardy. And, 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 and I think in the opera, it feels like this sort of impossible situation. And so watching these characters grapple with this, I think tells us a lot about the condition of our country and the way in which history is, is so present and is, is, its forces are, are operating right now, as, as Tracy was saying, and, you know, at seemingly invisibly and yet having very profound um, repercussions. I love that you say the larger family because, um, you know, ideally what we think about in, in reflection is that this larger family spans a nation and it extends beyond the kind of like tribal kinship bonds that we're so often, you know, we default to. Um, and that's a challenge to all of us, right? Yes, will they, won't they, what will happen? Um, that's a question you could kind of take away from this and, and ponder, but the bigger question is the better question. Will we, won't we? What do we do? How do we fix this? Yeah.
was Talise Trevine singing Patience's aria, There You Go, Caster, during a concert performance. She was accompanied by Marie-France Lefavre and Michael Lewis. Let's get back to our conversation. There is an aria that Patience has where she's with West and she's um, telling Caster's family about her commitment to this land and uh, her concern for the future. And she says, imagine what it's like trying to keep something alive and everyone's doing the best they can to get away. Tell me a little bit about the character of Patience. One of the first things that Patience says um, is she goes through the sort of the family tree. It's this litany that she, we, we kind of hear it as though she says it a lot. Like this is my, your grandfather and their grandfather and we extend all the way back here. And um, I think that in some ways establishes her as this historian. You know, yeah. she's somebody who um, understands where the family uh, comes from and believes that that's a really powerful inheritance, even that knowledge. And it goes beyond knowledge because there are, you know, artifacts, physical spaces, practices, um, a relationship with the land over time that she's a part of. And these are things that are precious to her. And you know, development is one force that has persuaded many people to um, sell, to cash out, to leave and, and start lives elsewhere. And so she sees this happening all around her and feels like the responsibility of preserving all of this, keeping it alive, keeping these stories alive, um, has fallen to her. Even her own son seems, as, as far as she's concerned, to be flirting with the idea of going away. And Castor's character is really feeling the the burden of financial debt and the crisis of having to wanting to provide for uh, his family as best he can. And, and he has a has a moment later where he says um, something is running through the trees, uh, something we can't see. We're out of money, out of equity, drowning upside down. Uh, him coming to patience is a really difficult. It seems like a very difficult thing that he's he's doing to come ask for this land. Can you tell me a little bit more about Castor in, in contrast to patients? Well, Castor is somebody who um, 
has also carried a responsibility, right? He sees himself, he's the patriarch in his family, he's inherited a certain ethic from his father who handled everything, who took care of everything. Um, and so there's this sense of responsibility that he carries um, and he wants to be able to continue providing for his, his family, continue ensuring that his children will have the opportunities that they, um, they should be entitled to. Um, and he's undone by the fact that he just can't do that on his own. The trees aria, in some ways, he's thinking about history. He's thinking about all that has been witnessed on this land that he's returning to for the, you know, it's been a long time since he's been there. He's thinking about persistence and how, you know, the trees continue um, despite what they've witnessed uh, or in the face of great damage and loss and change. Um, and he's trying to call on something to help him. I remember traveling and, and seeing, you know, in the South, you see these trees, they're full of like Spanish moss and kudzu and they tower above things. And they do seem almost like, you know, like guardians, custodians. And, you know, because, you know, we visited plantations on this trip and there's an ugly weight to, to that space, understanding the violence of these sites and how oftentimes it's unmarked, it's been beautified, you know, with this sort of nostalgic view of the old South um, that lives in many people's minds. And in some ways the landscape urges us or invites us to take a larger view, a more courageous view than Castor is, is dealing Consciously and unconsciously with some of that. Everyone's theory, whatever you want so bad, whatever you want from me, why don't you just take it, huh? Why don't you take it? Oh, son of a gun, getting cold now, huh? Gonna turn it up, we'll turn it up, cause I'm tired and tired and just simply.
it's such a powerful performance. It's hard to leave you with just that much. That was Reginald Smith Jr. singing the role of Castor, accompanied by the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. Towards the end of the opera, Castor receives a phone call that the family's defaulted on their loan payments and that their car is going to be repossessed. And Celeste turns to Patience to ask for her blessing in allowing them to sell a f- her to sell a few acres of her land. I think we're left hanging a bit at the end, exactly what decision is made by Castor and their family, um, because they, they leave on a ferry, and it, it remains unresolved. Yeah, part of the family leaves. Um, so we see Castor, Celeste, and Ruthie, their daughter, board the ferry. There's a lot of slippage in the work between past and present, and so we'll also witness characters we're recognized from historic scenes. Um, okay on that ferry as well. And, you know, like, if you want to wrap it up in your mind, you can make a decision and say, I think this is what they're doing. But the larger invitation is to say what is being undone um, with that decision. And that's where we are. That's where we live. You know, there are communities that have, that resemble Patience's community that have been characterized by black land ownership and black farming for, you know, since Reconstruction, and they're changing. They're becoming, you know, gated communities and resort communities, and because people are making decisions to let go of some or all of what they have. And I guess the the larger invitation is to say, what does that mean? (laughs) Where are we? You know, that larger family Brett was talking about. Uh, where are we going and, and what do we lose in doing that? I might add um, to that, you know, I, I've often thought of opera as about convergence rather than resolution. Um, and it's about things converging in ways that that get to some sort of larger truth, you know, in a, 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 a most general sense, you know, this idea of narrative and music. But I think in the, in the story, I think things start to converge in a way at the end of the story that um, I think reveals something that is maybe is more immediate than the decision, the ultimate decision that is made um, between Castor and his family and the land and whether they're going to sell. There's, there's some uh, larger convergence that happens based on what Tracy has done by folding in different time periods. And that that is the, the, the sort of convergence at the end is, is the resolution, if you will. And then um, the larger issue of the, the, the plot point is left more open-ended. Um, but there are, there are plenty of sort of uh, options that are left uh, that the, the, the viewer can decide which <laughs> they think has happened, you know, in the, in the following scene, in the, in the postlude. <laughs> That's something poetry is really invested in as well, that sense of convergence. Um, I've always thought that a poem, especially a lyric poem, is invested in revelation as opposed to narrative resolution. Um, You know, you might go from point A to point C to point D in a story, and then you realize that's where something overtakes you. And so the rest of the alphabet becomes less important than the feeling of clarity or... um, you know, coming apart and, and what that activates. And so it's exciting to know that we can kind of do something like that together, uh, musically, theatrically, and the narrative 
sort of recedes in a way that might be productive. Yeah, and, and to, just to build on that just quickly, um, you asked earlier about opera and, what, and the story in opera, and, and the final aria that Patience, she talks a lot about time and the convergence of time. So the convergence of the past with the present and with the future. And that's something very um, sort of profound to think about. It's something that I think opera has a certain kind of, has tools to create some sort of audible metaphor for what that might sound sound like, where music that happened in the, in the opera's past, if you will, like an hour before, can actually come back on top of music that's happening in the present or transform. It's almost a cliche at this point, but, but so much of music is really about time and about the convergence of time and, you know, an, a, an A and a B and an A coming back but converging with that first time we heard that music. And so there's a larger kind of uh, story being told that's maybe a little bit more abstract right at the end with, with these convergences of time and, um, and history, and then the characters finding themselves in that. And then the decision that they make occurs within that larger understanding that I think the opera has moved to in that, that um, Rather than the decision they make, I think Patience is very concerned that whatever decision Castor makes happens within a larger understanding of how she sees this place. And so I think that that's, that's hopefully where we get. That final aria is really powerful. I'm just going just gonna to say a couple lines from it. Think you know this man. Think you've seen him before. Think you recognize what he's destined for. Think you know him but can you love him? And if you love him, what do you owe him? Patience is addressing the audience directly at this point. I like the idea that we can do thought experiments in art. Yes. <laughs> we can say, you know, one experiment I think we're engaged in is what happens if memory is something that we more consciously activate and attend to and what happens if we allow the radius of our memory to be larger than we thought it was supposed to be? And I think another thought experiment is around questions of love as a civic enterprise. Um, and so that question of think you know him, but can you love him? You know, it, it, it's an invitation to think about what the terms of our regard have been and what they might be.
That's really a beautiful aria, isn't it? That was again Talise Trevine as Patience, accompanied by the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. An enormous thank you to Tracy and Greg for taking the time to talk with me. I went down to Cincinnati to see the work last month. Let me tell you, when this comes to your town, you don't want to miss it. It won't disappoint. I also want to thank the Cincinnati Opera and the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra for allowing us to use their wonderful audio excerpts. If you'd like to discover more about the music you heard today, please check us out at relevanttones.com. Relevant Tones is a production of Access Contemporary Music, a nonprofit organization with the mission of bringing musical creativity to life every day. Find out more at acmusic.org.